Well, good morning um, once again. Uh, today's text is, uh, is a special one for me. Um, you know, if you've grown up in the church or, or perhaps you, you have been a Christian for, for any long period of time, uh, today's passage is a dangerous one for us. And so I want to warn you before we enter into it. Now, now, why so dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because it's both a famous text of Scripture and a familiar text of Scripture. Familiar because it might be one of the very first verses of, of Scripture that you may have memorized as, as a young growing Christian or in, maybe in your college ministry. Um, or perhaps it's one of the first books of the Bible that you actually read from the beginning to the end. Um, it's, it's famous because it's, it's one of these rare verses, one of these rare passages of Scripture that, that actually has an impact outside of Christianity. It's, it's used in all different forms and ways by our culture, by our world, and variations of this verse has, has been around us everywhere in sports, in movies, in athletics, and in music. So, so today, I, I want you to try to do something for me if today's Scripture text is a familiar one for you. Uh, I want you to dissect every verse like a surgeon would, all right? Marinate in each sentence like a good chef and, and, and try and see what the Lord is speaking through you. Make this a new text for you this morning. So turn, tap, or swipe your Bibles to, to James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And look at these verses as I read them out loud. And, and most importantly, I want you to hide these words in your heart this morning. James 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Family, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we have a great hope in this life, a final hope that reminds us of what we are being made into. Lord, a new creation, united to Christ, undivided in heart to you. So Father, help us to seek after that moment and that day. May your spirit now be with the preaching of your word. Help us to worship in praise, in repentance, and in joy. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So I want you to imagine with me. Imagine this. This is your task. You have to write one letter to every single group of friends and family that you knew. Imagine that you only had five pages to type it up. And imagine that you were tasked with trying to tell them everything that they would need to live according to the way that God has asked them to live. How many of you are stressed out right now, right? This is the Herculean task of James. 
And this book is celebrated, it's memorized, it's lifted as as one of the most practical and timeless books of the Bible. But not many of us who have studied it may have realized why it was so necessary for the early church to have this letter. And why James is so important for us today as Christians living in this period of redemptive history. You know, too often the book of James is seen as an individual life application self-help letter. And to do this would rob James of its impact. It's certain, now, now don't get me wrong, it's certainly helpful for individuals to grow in, but, but you have to remember James was a letter written to the church. It would have been read out loud in the congregation. There was no printing press, there was no email forwarding, right? One letter was distributed to the churches to be read out loud. So imagine sitting in a church and listening to this letter and realizing as you look around that this letter isn't just for you and your own heart. This is a letter for everyone. So we're going to take a very different approach today, maybe in the way that you have heard James preached. Uh, We are going to talk about James from the perspective of the collective body of Christ. Before we do this, we got to go deeper into the basics of this book so that we can, we can understand where James is going with this, all right? So, first of all, who is James? <laughs> James is a man of big credentials. He's a man who could boast about great things, about his status and his place in the church. But if you look carefully at the way that James opens up his letter, he's trying to communicate something to these exiled Christians who are scattered across the dispersion, the lands. Uh, he calls himself a servant, a servant. How many of you are here familiar with uh, name dropping, right? Maybe you're, you, you know a name dropper, right? If, if you're unfamiliar with the concept, uh, it's where someone tries to make themselves look better by associating themselves with someone of status. So if you're a cook and you, drop the na- and you name drop the fact that, oh, I made a recipe with Gordon Ramsay, right? It, it's, it's, it's sort of trying to lift up your own stock. But, but that isn't what James is doing here. He doesn't call himself, as he rightfully could, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself, I am an apostle with authority, so y'all need to listen to me. He calls himself a servant. He says that, in essence, if we were to translate this today, he's a cook that used to work at McDonald's. <laughs> no offense to anyone who enjoys McDonald's or has worked there, right? But, but that, that's kind of the equivalent of what he's calling himself to. He's calling himself lowly, a servant. And he calls himself a servant, and he lowers his status to demonstrate that he is nothing compared to the message and the messenger of what he's trying to say. A servant of Christ who is delivering a message from his master, Jesus, to this group called the dispersion. This group was facing persecution They were dealing with their own inner problems and sins. They were trying to live out a brand new faith in a brand new community. James has this heart of a servant, and he wants to help. And so here's the problem and task for James. How can you possibly say anything that would be helpful to all of these different kinds of people living in all of these different regions, right, living in different stages of their life, and say anything that would be greatly meaningful to them? Well, the way that you are able to do that, and the way that James does that, is to write about two things that will cover our time here today. True hope and true wisdom. True hope and true wisdom. 
So he's not trying to fill them with knowledge, not content. He's not trying to talk to them about moral living. He's not talking about platitudes or trying to be a motivational speaker on TED, right? He's talking about just simply true hope and true wisdom. So let's take a look at these verses and examine how James is talking about true hope. Now, he starts by talking about a quote that could serve as a huge letdown for anyone who was trying to to expect something incredibly profound or incredibly novel from James. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if you're anything like me, reading these verses at at this phase in my life, um, this seems like a lot of naive psychobabble talk, doesn't it? Or at the very least, it seems like incredibly basic counsel. We've all heard variations and phrases of this growing up and seen sort of, you know, the cliche motivational posters and sort of the cringy quote that comes alongside with it, right? You know, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? No pressure, no diamond, right? And probably, you know, the cringiest one of all, right? Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. This is why we get so cynical, isn't it? Um, Scripture almost seems to sound like, oh, you know, let's just all have a good attitude, So we can become better people and be the best version of ourselves. And and it rings hollow to us because it appears to be indistinguishable from what the world tells us. But in looking closer in this text, James is not trying to give us fortune cookies, right? Little nuggets that we think are nice, but we just discard and leave aside. James is, is giving us the keys to understanding where true hope comes from in uncertainty, This word joy that James is talking about, there's so much more to this word that is used in Scripture than the way that is used in the world. It's more than just a positive attitude in a dark place. What James is talking about when he talks about joy is because joy is knowing that we know the end of the story. Joy is knowing that we know the end of the story. Church. What is the end of the story? Do you know it? Think about this. Just, just, just take a moment to think about this. We as Christians believe that one day we will be perf- a perfected new creation, united to Christ and his kingdom. You and I will have a, a perfect glorified body. There will be no more pain or sickness or death to speak of. All sinning and sinful thoughts will cease. All of your tired striving will stop. We will be surrounded with, with billions and billions of believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue and, and be this full expression of the glory of God. We will see the Lord face to face in all of his majesty and might, and splendor, and we will finally find true rest from all the things that would rob us of our joy. We will live every single day for eternity, think about this, in the most perfect union, the just society, the great kingdom. We will live in harmony and be able to breathe that sigh of relief 
the midst of the storm of your life right now? Are you joyous about the end of the story? Is this the end of the story that we imagine for this church? Is this the joy that the body of Christ can unite under? You see, true joy living as the body of Christ isn't just simply to make lemonade out of lemons. True joy is to recognize that the church knows only one way to heaven and pursues the pathway to get there because we cannot wait for that day. We cannot wait for the end of the story. You know, my concern nowadays for the church is we are deluding ourselves in believing that the end of the story comes only through the fulfillment of joys of our own making. What do I mean by this? We put our joys in our careers, thinking that we'll provide comfort. We put our joys in governments, believing that they will pursue the good. We put our joys in our life plans, thinking they will provide stability or pre- even perhaps a little bit more shrewdly, as a church, we put our hopes that our church will be the most perfect church filled with perfect Christians. And when the world appears to be burning down, we fall apart because none of these are what God has promised us for this life. He has not promised these ends to be the means of joy. Joy is not a pathway of our own making. He has promised us joy through a very different pathway. If you look at verse, chapter th- or verse 3 of, of this chapter here, you will see that joy comes through the testing of our faith that leads to steadfastness. Now, I want to be careful here when I talk about steadfastness again because I'm not just simply talking about patience or simply just keeping the course. It's, it's so much more than that, this word, steadfastness. It's interesting because In James' era, the Jewish Christians of that time were keenly aware of what steadfastness meant to them because of their understanding of the Old Testament history. Steadfastness is not simply passively sitting on your hands waiting to become perfect and complete. They knew that their fathers and generations before them failed to grasp this understanding of steadfastness. This was the failure of Adam in the garden who stood passively by and allowed sin to dictate his actions. They knew that this there was Israel who was sent into exile because of their passivity, they, they, their failure in the wilderness, their failure in totally taking over the land in Joshua and in Judges, their failure of looking to God as king in 1 Samuel and 2 Chronicles and so looking to man as king, their failure to listen to the prophets of God to remind them of the true hope that they had. Israel, time and time again, was not steadfast but passive. Drop their guard down. Israel, knowing the promises of God, knowing the pathway of true hope, still chose other pathways that God had not led them to go through. They allowed themselves to be controlled by their circumstances rather than trusting that God was going to lead them to the center of his will through testing and in trial. In other words, they stood by and let it happen to them. Steadfastness is a call to action to live in such a way that demonstrates that the church, the body of Christ, trusts in God and where he has placed us. 
even if that means it's going to be extremely uncomfortable and extremely difficult. Steadfastness is the church loving your neighbor and the stranger as we love ourselves. Steadfastness is is leading this church family in the instruction of the Lord, even though it would be easier to turn on Netflix and drown ourselves in distraction and escapism. Steadfastness is to stop pretending and engage in hard conversations. Steadfastness is looking to the needs of our broader community, knowing that those who are suffering the most during this time need help, and we are called to be good Samaritans rather than the Pharisees that walked alongside. Steadfastness is going where God is leading us, even if we know it is dangerous and unsafe. But we go because there is no other pathway than what he has called us to. And we know the end of the story. Do you see how this changes the letter of James into more than just a self-help book? It's about the church to live actively in the midst of darkness rather than looking inwardly and just only thinking about ourselves. Steadfastness, in other words, is, is not just patience. It is bringing ourselves into the imitation and example of the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. This is why steadfastness at its fullest, as we read on in our verses, makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because when we're steadfast, we are imitating the steadfastness of our Lord and Savior. I mean, have you ever thought about how hard it was for Jesus to live the steadfast life? Jesus, with demands on every side, in steadfastness, goes to the hurting, the sick, and the poor, and the marginalized. People that society would not touch, but he knew that they needed the hope of Jesus. Jesus, in steadfastness, spends his most intimate moments with his disciples who constantly just rebel and just don't understand what he's saying and leave him at the cross. But he sticks with them. Why? So that they will become the greatest evangelists that the world has ever known. Steadfastness of Jesus, right, is is to challenge the religious hypocrisy of his day to remind them of God's mercy and God's justice, despite the fact that they are actively always trying to kill him. Steadfastness is the one, is the emotional life of our Lord, as B.B. Warfield talks about, who weeps with empathy for Lazarus, who flips tables in the temple in anger, who who tells the little children to come to him in love. Steadfastness is expressing all of human emotion to remind us that to be human is to feel. Steadfastness of Christ, who looks at at the Father's will when he goes to the cross, And even though he prays, Lord, please take this cup away from me, steadfastness of Christ going, not my will, but yours be done. As he dies on the cross for you and I, as he takes upon all the penalty and judgment of sin, the death and separation and hell that we deserve, so that you and I might have a righteousness that is not of our own and a living hope. Steadfastness. This is what our Savior has done for us. 
This is why James writes that steadfastness leads us to being complete and lacking nothing. Because when we imitate this, we, as the body of Christ, start looking like Jesus. Think about this. We say that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. Ten out of ten. No mistakes. Perfect score. We say Jesus lacked nothing. You ever thought what Jesus didn't have and yet his life lacked nothing? Jesus didn't have a Roth IRA, a property or land of his own. Jesus didn't even have children. Jesus was never married. He didn't have a platform other than the platform of the cross. Jesus wasn't adorned with the finest linens or had the most beautiful appearance. He had a crown of thorns. And the prophet says that Jesus didn't have an appearance that would make us think of anything else to him. Jesus didn't eat at the most lavish parlors or drink the most strongest and luxurious drink. Jesus had none of these things, but Jesus lacked nothing. So how does that change your perspective on the challenges and trials that you have faced this year? You know, what if James is saying saying this to us in 2020? What What if James is saying that everything that we faced last year together as a body is actually a means that brings us closer to Jesus than we could ever possibly imagine? Amidst all of the heartbreak and change and suffering and loneliness that we faced, that, that all these things actually brought us nearer to the perfect, lacking nothing life that Jesus lived. And that all of these things would actually help us to see him much more clearly than we could have ever had in 2019. Duke Kwan, uh, a PCA pastor in Washington, D.C., at the start of last year, asked these questions that, uh, three questions that I would love for you to consider now. Now, you don't have to write these down. I just want you to think about these questions with me. One, what if God and his providence is downshifting the American church into a mode of simplicity, stripped of its non-essentials and grandiosity, so that it renewed its fundamental identity as the people of God? Two, What if the church in these days of pestilence were to become known as a people who were least fearful of all, who spoke freely of resurrection as their final hope, who routinely exposes themselves to risk in order to love their neighbors even when others in self-preservation refuse to love their neighbors? Three, what if Christians in faith, hope, and love were to pray not merely for survival, but revival. That God might use even this as he has in the past to catalyze an outbreak of his presence in power, widespread repentance and conversion, joyful and generous community, vibrant witness in word and in deed. Oh, right? If you can't say amen, you better say ouch, as Vadi Bakum would say, right? In other words, what if the church right now 
were to be steadfast in a way that would make the world consider how great Jesus is in this present darkness. That we were such a light that the church would bear such a strong testimony of the steadfastness of Christ that people couldn't help but to worship and fall on their knees. And I know what you're probably thinking right now. Sounds great, Pastor, right? But how? How is this even possible? These last three verses in our text tell us, verses 5 to 8, true hope can only come from true wisdom. From true wisdom. Verse 5 reminds us that we have a generous God who gives wisdom freely, without reproach, meaning that we have a God who doesn't look at our past sins and holds back his generosity. He looks where we are as Christ's body and gives us generous wisdom to move forward in joy. I think this should all blow us away when we think about this because this would have surely have blown the minds of the early church, especially for those in the early church who grew up culturally Jewish. You don't just get to go to God to have access to him. You have to understand, before Christ came into the world, going into God's presence was so risky and so deadly. If you didn't approach him with the right posture and the right heart and the right credentials, you don't get to live. <laughs> you don't just get to ask him anything. You had to get dressed. You had to prepare sacrifices. You had to approach the temple. You had to walk to the altar. You had to face the high priest. There were levels of clearances, right? Not governmental clearances, but like governmental clearances that they had to pass so that they could hope to have access to God. This is why it makes Jesus Christ, when the curtain is torn in two, so significant. Because the early church is, is now realizing, oh my gosh, we have free and open access to this generous king who is going to give us the wisdom that we need if we just simply go to him and ask. All of us have the ability to go before God and ask and his wisdom and grace to be present before us. You don't need to be born of a certain tribe. You don't need to have lived a certain life. You don't need to self-disqualify yourself because of the guilt that you feel. Jesus grants us the broken, messy bride of Christ an open door to the generous, gracious God who has always pursued us and now gives us freely the gift of wisdom. This is the free offer of the gospel. And he's offering it to you. So why haven't we laid claim to it? What are we waiting for? Church, what's stopping us from going to the Lord today? James tells us why we haven't laid hold to it. The faith that we have in this generous God must be one that believes that there is no other way that God is, is going to give this to us. That in other words, to lack faith, you are going to put yourself in a position where God is not only doesn't act, but he cannot act no matter how hard you try because James is what you are calling a double-minded person. That word for double-minded in the original language is, is actually a word that is used for the first and very time in Greek literature. Right? And James literally is using a slang word which means double-souled person. That's what that word double-minded means. Right? Literally translated double-souled. It's not that James believes that we have two souls. It's saying that you have a divided heart. You have doubt in your mind that God is as generous as he says that he is. 
You doubt that he is really here for your good and his glory. Just kind of illustrate a story about what this means for us as a church, right? To, to walk like this together, to, in the fullness of trust. Um, you know, I'll never forget the first and only time I, I went whitewater rafting. I'm not talking about those, like, man-made rapid courses that have, like, metal barriers, you know, everything's safe and protected. I'm talking the real deal, right? Going down a river stream. And I remember I was just a young high school student, sophomore in high school, uh, never spent any time in a boat, right? Was with other three cozy suburban teenagers who had never spent any time in a boat, right? And we thought, you know, it'd be a great idea if all of us got in a boat together and went down some class three rapids. <laughs> what could go wrong, right? We would have been absolutely terrified if it wasn't for our guide, that fifth person in the boat. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know that the guide is the most important person on that raft, as you're trying to get through the rapids and you see all the turmoil and the waves that are around you, it's his job to make sure you get to the bottom of the river. So he taught us how to row more effectively and efficiently. He told us which paths to go down and which paths that actually, by the way, seemed safe, he told us to avoid because he, he, he knew the danger that lurked underneath those safe paths. And so all of us would go together. But, but if even one of us in that boat was doubting the wisdom of this guide, paddling the wrong way, if one person who was living double-souled lived in doubt of the direction that we were headed, we not only put ourselves at risk, we, we put the whole raft at risk. Luckily, that wasn't us. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here before you today preaching. <laughs> Our reward at the end of that boat ride was after we tumbled and stumbled through all these rapids was at the very bottom of this channel was this glorious, picturesque view of the mountains, of the forest. And we were sitting in still waters. Our, our oars were, were tucked away to the side and we could just sit and breathe and relax because we followed the wisdom of our guide. It was a small taste of heaven. Church, as we end here today, I want to plead with you that wherever your heart may be, no matter what you think is preventing you from accessing our generous and wise God, our great hope, no matter what is making you think that you need to go somewhere other than the direction that he is leading you now, Know that we as the body of Christ cannot move forward unless we are all committed to run in that same direction. The path of Christ's suffering, which leads to glory. The steadfastness of knowing where our journey's end is going to be. And knowing that our great guide is telling us how to get there, no matter how difficult the pathway might seem. So if you're a veteran rafter or just jumping into the boat, my prayer for this church is that we would trust in true hope and true wisdom to lead us to those still waters as Christ is leading us today. Let's pray together. Father, um, we, we thank you for your word, which reminds us of where true joy lies. It lies not in our self-improvement, Lord, not just willing ourselves mentally, but it lies in knowing of, of being the people of God, the body of Christ, that are living knowing that we know the end of the story.
Father, may your spirit guide us in all wisdom. May you grant us wisdom generously to light our paths in the days and weeks and months ahead. Lord, we ask this in faith because we know that you are the only one that could grant it and give it. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.